0: Welcome to the DTP podcast for May 2022, Volume 60, Number 5. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTP's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of May's DTP. But before we get into the content, I think we need to address a comment that, James, you were very nearly responsible for a nasty cycling accident... Um, yes indeed. I mean uh, the people
1: I, I couldn't work out whether it was STC in Bournemouth or Gimmo in Cardiff. But we were a little concerned that we had an exploding clinical pharmacist on our hands due to a comment so I made. Yes. And I, yes, I must deeply well, me, apologize for upsetting upsetting him. Let me
0: let me explain to those who who perhaps not caught up with the story that we were alerted via Twitter. Um, to a recent edition of a podcast called The Oral Apothecary, which is, as you say, presented by three pharmacists. And in their podcast, and I think it's Steve, one of the presenters said he was cycling home listening to our podcast, and he nearly exploded when he heard something you said and that it took him an hour to calm down. So I've been back and listened to that particular issue of their podcast, and it seems that Steve took exception to a comment you made on GP practice-based pharmacists during a discussion we had on the National Overprescribing Report.
1: Yes, I think I just rather clumsily suggested that um, clinical pharmacists are experts in drugs and perhaps that's where they should be focusing. Um, And... uh, said it in a way that sort of seemed to suggest that they had no other skills, which perhaps was a bit um, clumsy of me. So I'd like to apologise profusely, and it's really good to hear that uh, the team there do follow us. Um, and of course, we have our spies and uh, we'll follow them too. Um, and it's great. And I think it's, just a, it's, it's an indication of the dynamic that's going on in primary care at the moment between a lot of new, um, interesting professional groups coming together And we need to work out how we get the best out of all these different clinical groups that are now joining us in primary care. So um, lots more discussion, I'm sure, um, to have in the future about that. But uh, yes, no more hopefully exploding clinical pharmacists. We need every single one of them.
0: And probably worth worth acknowledging that, that there is a spectrum of activity that pharmacists are carrying out in, uh, in general
1: Well, you practice. see, I, you see I, wasn't, I didn't want to go into this, but you're absolutely right. I think one of the difficulties we have in general practice at the moment is we never quite know what sort of clinical pharmacist or social prescriber or first contact physio we're going to get. Um, there's an incredible diversity of uh, skill sets and abilities. And I think that's where... Perhaps the tensions can sometimes arise because we just don't know who is best at doing what at the moment. And I think that will come with time. It's not a criticism of anyone. It's just the way things are. And I certainly do not want to put anyone off coming and joining uh, primary care. It's a fabulous place to work and it'll be even more fabulous when the pace and pressure Um, is let off a little bit to allow us to really spread our wings so yeah it's um it's it's is what it is as they say and uh it should be a very exciting time for primary care in the next sort of decade if things go according to plan
0: so apologies to uh, or apologies for nearly creating a vacancy on the (laughs) oral apostrophe podcast but um we're we're happy to receive comments if we if we say things that are wrong or people take exception to So, okay, let's start off with this month. Let's go to the editorial. Um, Last month, you kicked off our 60th anniversary by reflecting on DTB's early days and thinking how things have changed, particularly in the UK. Uh, This month, our editorial looks slightly broader and considers perhaps a more international perspective. Um, Do you want to say a bit more about it?
1: Yeah, so this is um, us looking at the wider family of independent drug bulletins worldwide. There are um, many, many dozens of drug bulletins. Some are promoted and run by uh, governments of countries. Others are subscription like ourselves. Um, and they form a really important group uh, that was all, all came out as much as DTB did in the 90s, 1950s and 60s uh, when there began to be a feeling that we needed some useful pragmatic, rational prescribing advice for clinicians. And that's really where it all started.
0: And last month we talked about DTP being a very early one of example of the, the, the drug bulletins. And as you say, more have appeared since then. Um, and particularly worth highlighting that this has also been coordinated, or at least sponsored as well through the World Health Organization.
1: Yes, I think I think um, you know, we have to thank people like Andrew Herxheimer, who uh I think lobbied the WHO to support um DTB and others to form the, the International Society of Drug Bulletins, the ISDB. And their goal right from the start was to support development of rational prescribing, but also actually to make sure that I uh, international or just drug bulletins generally were financially and intellectually independent of the pharmaceutical industry. Right from the start, that was a really important element. And they're also there to help campaign for drug regulatory authorities to serve public health first and foremost. And that's, I think, very pertinent
0: for this day and age. I guess one of the key messages, which and we've seen this haven't we strengthened in our time with working with ISDB, Is that need for independence and freedom from conflicts of interest?
1: Yes, a conflict of interest has always been a really important element of all drug bulletins internationally. And ISDB themselves have struggled with making sure that there is that absolute clarity of what constitutes a conflict of interest and how important it is for the editorial boards and writers of articles for drug
0: bulletins to be scrupulously independent. And so we now follow that and we've got it on our website and we will continue to uh, make sure that our authors uh, don't have any, any conflicts of interest.
1: Yes. And as actually I think I put in my last month's editorial, I think it's more important than ever now as we go into the 2020s that drug bulletins are able to make sure that the regulatory authorities of countries and the pharmaceutical industry, um, there is someone there that's independent and really making sure that uh, we hold up um, the development of drugs to a a bright independent light. Okay,
0: thank you very much. Um, One of our DTB select items this month, Uh, and in it we provide an overview of a study that assessed Metazepine for treating agitation in people with dementia. James, do you want to give us a quick overview of what it was?
1: Yeah, this is the Lancet SIMBAD um, trial, 2021. Very simple, straightforward, double-blind, randomised control trial uh, in about 200 participants over 26 centres. And the idea is that patients with probable or possible Alzheimer's disease and agitation were randomly assigned either to a uh, gradual titration up of metazapine from 15 milligrams up to 45 milligrams by four weeks or placebo and with standard care. And follow up was at 12 weeks and they assessed agitation by means of the Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory. And what they found was that um, actually there was no difference in the scores at the end of the trial. Um, I think both groups had actually reduced um, the amount of agitation on the scoring system. And uh, the other two interesting issues from it was there was a higher burden of care required in the metazapine group. And there was also an increased death rate in that group seven deaths versus one in the placebo group, but the study wasn't powered to distinguish whether that was significant or not. But the bottom line is we don't or shouldn't use metazapine to improve agitation in elderly patients. Um, And I think what the other bit of information I take from this study is that people get better anyway. So I think it's really important about putting in the right social care, putting in the right, psychosocial elements to this more than uh, trying a chemical.
0: And as you say, I mean, the, the finding that more people died in the, in the metaspine group may just have been a chance finding. I mean, as you say, it wasn't wasn't powered for that, but it did suggest that not only was there no benefit, but there might've been some harms. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that, and that's why I think it's just, it just, you know, it's a good study. I'm so pleased, you know, it was a placebo control study um, and I know that a lot of a lot of GPs and other clinicians, you know, we're faced with this something must be done approach. And it's very easy to think, well, I'll try something. I've heard they've, you know, other people have tried metazapine, oh, I'll I give that a trial. And of course, what happens is the patient does get a little bit better at six weeks, and everyone says, Whoopee, it was the metazapine. And actually, what this study shows was a placebo will have worked just as
0: well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and then our main article this month, uh, we look at Two new oral antivirals that have been licensed for treating COVID-19. Um so what what are the two drugs? And do you want to just talk us through some of the evidence for them?
1: Yeah, so this is the two drugs, Mornuparavir, uh, which is a Merck Sharp and Dom drug and Nermotrelvir and ritonavir, that's a combination called Paxlovid, which is it's a combination of uh, an antiviral agent which inhibits a protease uh, vital for viral replication. That's the Nerm And the ritonavir is just there as part of the Paxlovid duo to um, inhibit a cytochrome P450 mediated metabolism of the other drug. So it's a combination drug that works that way. And that's uh, made by Pfizer. And I think a lot of um, people in primary care will be aware of these drugs. There's been this uh, push to uh, use them in an attempt to prevent admissions to hospital. So um, there is currently an NHS programme in place that picks up patients at risk and offers them um, an oral antiviral Um, as a way of preventing hospital admissions. So these are two drugs that I think are now being used and people are aware of them. And what we do is we look at the the evidence behind them and really work out whether they are offering uh, much in the way of any benefit.
0: So worth stating that um, both studies, and they're very similar studies, uh, looked at adults who were at risk of developing severe COVID-19. So they had some sort of risk factor. they were not done in hospital, so it was out of hospital care. But the big issue for me is that they were both looking at unvaccinated populations.
1: Yes, this is the major issue for both the studies is that the results we have, and they look pretty good. So we have, um, from the Monuparavir, we've got this uh, one study called Move Out. And the at-risk population they looked at for those people were over 60 year olds, those with cancer diagnosis, CKD3 or worse, COPD, obesity or diabetes. So a very typical uh, group of at-risk patients. And they had to be treated within five days of a proven infection. Um, Both these drugs have this stipulation, which obviously means the clock is ticking when you come to use it. And the interim results uh, actually came out in the press before they were published. Uh, And the full results um, when they were published weren't quite as good as the the press release, if you like. But what you're looking at is um, numbers needed to treat of about 33. So if you give 33 people Molnuparavir in those at-risk patients who weren't vaccinated, then you will prevent one hospital admission. Or death or death exactly um so that that's the moniovire so you know if if it is if if that is the same in the vaccinated population then i would suggest that's a that's pretty good because um keeping people out of hospital during a pandemic is a vital thing to be able to do so that's moniovire paxlovid um, we have a phase two stroke three randomized control trial called EPIC-HR, about 2,000 uh, participants. Um, they actually didn't need to be obese. They could have a BMI of 25, but otherwise the participant group was very similar. And likewise, the out- primary outcome was either hospitalization or death. And their final NNT was 18 um, with, if taken within five days of a diagnosis. Actually, it's slightly better if the drug was taken within three days of a diagnosis, you had an NNT of 17. So once again, a really significant result if this truly occurs in a vaccinated population. And it's a major issue because we have a incredibly well-vaccinated population in the UK, so we just don't know whether these drugs are actually doing any good
0: i think what was interesting as well was i mean there there are, there are all sorts of caveats you can play in the, you know we are, we are talking about single trials relatively small numbers of people i mean it's difficult stuff to do this but but there weren't huge numbers of people in the trials and as you say all unvaccinated and then there's the question of the different virus variants that were are now around, though were around in the time of the study. So again, unknown as to how how it works with different uh, variants of, of of the virus. But one thing that people have pointed out, and perhaps is worth considering, is that in the more new Pivovir study, there were a couple of subgroups where actually people did better on placebo. But now again, the, the study wasn't designed to or powered for those subgroups, but. Interestingly, you know, some people didn't do or didn't get a benefit from the drug. So again, some unknowns. Oh,
1: huge. And I think the big one, and the big one
0: for me, and I had to go back and um,
1: remind myself of the the rule of three when it comes to how many patients do you need in a trial to pick up an adverse event. Um, and if you talk about, let's say an adverse event of some kind, a significant one, let's say it occurs in one in a thousand people. You need 3,000 people just to pick up one event in that trial. Now, neither of these studies had 3,000 people in them. So neither of these trials would have picked up events um, of any, you know, significant events of any um, less frequency than one in a thousand. In fact, they probably only just about powered to pick up events that would occur in 1 in 100 or 1 in 200. So, you know, we don't know what the adverse events are for this, which is why it's. I think it's useful that um, they've been used in quite a, a strict fashion. You know, these are not drugs that your GP can prescribe for you. And one hopes that somewhere people are collecting adverse event data to
0: make sure there's nothing in this that uh, we should be aware of. And the other issue for Paxlovid is that it has got a huge list of potentially severe drug reactions or interactions that you have to be aware of. Um, so although it, on paper it looks a more effective, or certainly had a, a better outcome in the trials, it's not so straightforward to use as monupiravir.
1: No, the the, the return of it, a bit of it, this this cytochrome P four fifty inhibitor means that you know classic drugs like amiodarone, clozapine, colchicine. Simvastatin, they're all going to um, be contraindications for its use. So you're right; um,
0: it's got a it's got a bit of a sting in the tail. And just one final <sighs> whinge from my point of view, <laughs> or two whinges. Let's let's get them out. We saw all through their development; the data was released by press release, um, and it took us a long time to see um, any formal data published. Uh, we were able to get eventually some of the public assessment reports and then the studies appeared in New England Journal but a lot of it the early data was just in press releases which was very difficult to evaluate. And the second is how much do these drugs cost and what is their cost effectiveness? Again I've not seen anything to say what the NHS is paying for these and whether whether they actually would pass NICE's cost effectiveness threshold.
1: This is right. And I think um, I think you pointed out to me one of the news from NHS England uh, briefings that's come out talking about these brilliant new antivirals. You know, there's a uh, there's a significant amount of sort of commercialization that's gone on before we've really had the evidence. I, I just feel it's almost as if as clinicians, we're the last to know. <laughs> and yet we're the ones that are prescribing this drug and will be responsible for making sure that it's safe as well as being effective. So. Um, interesting times. Um, I suppose, you know, they seem to be good news. And I don't, you know, if if those number needed to treat pan out for vaccinated as well, then they are going to be a significant um, part of our armamentarium. But I just wish people would sort of just recognise that there's no such thing as a safe drug. Let's just be, you know, let's be safe. Let's just take things quietly. Let's not get... Overexcited and start um, imagining that um, you know every drug is safe and we can just dish it out willy-nilly.
0: So overall, great news that you know that we had research, people got these drugs tested into clinical trials. We have some positive results for them, but let's be realistic about the the depth of the data that we've got. that It's still early days. They're looking good, but there could well be adverse effects that we know nothing about at this stage. So as you say more caution perhaps, and less hype. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, thank you very much. Um, You can find all these articles and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. To celebrate our 60th anniversary, we've got a video on our website of you, James, talking about DTB's early days and how things have changed over the years. And we've also got a dedicated page for our 60th anniversary with the April issue, uh, reflections from Sir Patrick Valance of his time with DTB, and some examples of DTB articles that have made a difference over the years. Uh, if you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know. You can suggest topics for articles or offer to be uh, a peer reviewer. Just email us at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, and as ever, thank you for comments. And if we've said anything that has caused you to nearly explode or has upset you, do let us know and we'll address it in a future issue. Uh, So many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for June's podcast.